Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, I'm joined by Denise Schreiber. Denise is a nationally known garden writer and the author of Eat Your Roses, Pansies, and Lavender, and 49 Other Delicious Flowers. She's a longtime member of GardenCom, the International Association of Garden Communicators. And I think that's where we first met, right, Denise? Absolutely. I'm going to say that was 15 years ago, my first garden writers at that time then the name was gwa uh was at uh the i want to say it was outside of uh, outside of philadelphia brandywine valley that was actually my first conference although i'd been a member since 2001 cool so it was a first for both of us and we had some memorable weather (laughs) that year (laughs) and we also had some memorable incidents at the closing after party from what I uh, dimly recall (laughs) yeah yeah there there was a person who was at my table and she apparently was so drunk she fell off the chair and she was still so drunk the next morning that they wouldn't let her on their flight and I believe her company (laughs) fired her yikes yeah and that wasn't a member i don't think of of garden writers that was somebody that was somebody who was uh working (laughs) with giving out samples and information to garden writers right and then of course there was the tornado that hit the hotel Mm -hmm. um the flooding the incredibly Mm -hmm. high uh temperatures and my favorite was that the herpetology society moved into the hotel for those of you don't know what herpetology is it's snakes and lizards (laughs) Yeah, it was it was quite a week and quite an introduction. But yeah, uh, live events are like that, right? Absolutely. You you always have to have plan B, C and D. And for those listening to us on the Garden DC podcast, we're actually on plan C. Uh, We had a little difficulty connecting on our audio connection today. So you might notice the sound is a little bit different. So we're back to um, recording by phone. So hopefully this will go smoothly for both of us. And we, if there's a dog barking in the background or a helicopter goes overhead, you know, that's life, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're here to uh, talk to Denise about her edible flower expertise. But before we dive into that, Denise, I know that you had recently retired from being the greenhouse manager and horticulturist with Allegheny County Parks um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right. At, That was 30 years with them? Almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, Allegheny County Parks, our park system includes over 12,000 acres of parkland. And so I was not only the greenhouse manager where we grew all the plants for all the parks and other county facilities such as our nursing homes and our courthouse and our juvenile facility, which was interesting in itself. Um, because I never had to think of plants as weapons, but there I did have to think of plants as weapons. So no hot peppers, no tomato steak, little things like that. Yeah. And then, um, I ended up being the horticulturist for the county parks as well as a certified arborist. And so I was in charge of a tree program. I literally planted trees by hand, big trees. And I also taught classes and I would do speaking all over. Who, whoever said they wanted a speaker, I was the one they sent. Hmm. And I know one of your other hats you wear, like a lot of us garden communicators, you have many hats that you wear, is as Mrs. Know-it-all. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Okay, so it wasn't my idea for that name. So, I, you know, <laughs> because people always give me a hard time about it. So I do a radio show with Doug Oster on KDKA Radio, which is AM in Pittsburgh. It's also FM. Actually, it was the first major radio station in the United States. It was a 50,000-watt stu- uh, station 
which is unusual and still is, as a matter of fact. And he would all, Doug would always ask me questions and everything. And so when he got the show started, he said, I want you to be my Mrs. Know-it-all. And I'm like, okay, so I can be Mrs. Or not Mrs. I said, I can be like the garden goddess. He said, no, I like Mrs. Know-it-all. And so does the show director. So I'm known as Mrs. Know-it-all. <laughs> well, we've had Doug on the podcast before talking about his passion for tomatoes in particular so we'll definitely have Doug back and maybe he can give a little bit more background on the Mrs. Know-it-all story too. Yeah I I still give him a hard time on that. (laughs) So before you got into horticulture was that where you started your career? Have you always had (laughs) I was gonna say have you always had chlorophyll in your veins? Were you raised as a gardener by gardeners? Well now uh, I've done the genealogy for my family mm-hmm. and on my mother's side of the family, the maid, you know, the family name is Scalise and in Italy, it means astrumente, which means to work with tools of the earth. So the apple really didn't fall far from the tree. However, it was sort of a roundabout journey to get there. So I worked as an overseas operator long before you could direct dial so I can say hello and uh, in about seven or eight languages. I can count to 10 in about three of them. And I can get food and find a bathroom in three of them. So that kind of worked. And then I ended up tending bar. I managed a bar and restaurant in downtown Pittsburgh for about 10 years. And that, I met some very interesting people, people that I still keep in touch with. However, it's not a life I wanted to continue with. And... So I actually went to um, our community college who was offering free tuition at the time. And I went there and I got a degree in floriculture. And then I got a degree, started working for a local nursery. And from there, I got a job as a seasonal worker with the county. And I was there ever since. I finally got on as a full-time employee. So, you know, it's a long, strange path that we all take to get there. Well, it does sound like there's a lot of overlap with gardening along the way. Even with the international operator, at least you got to learn a little Latin maybe that way. Uh, No, actually, I went to a Catholic school. I had five years of Latin and four (laughs) years of French. And the best language I speak is Spanish. Uh (laughs) Well, that can definitely help out. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But, you know, I did meet some very interesting people. So uh, that, that was fun. I did meet interesting people over the phone. Tom mm-hmm. Jones, um, uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., uh, Haas Cartwright. <laughs> <laughs> so that I think you have to be a baby boomer or, yes. or maybe a little bit older to recognize some of those names. But Well, Douglas but, Fairbanks was, a, my mm-hmm. mother was a fan of him. Yep. And I was going to say, everybody else, Google it. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll, there are some great legends there. So when you were bartending in Pittsburgh, did you ever use edible flowers in any of your mixology? No, but I used to create recipes with drinks long before it became very trendy, mm-hmm. especially when we would have private parties. So I used to make some really killer drinks, but Back then, flowers really weren't on the radar for using in food or drinks. But now you can. You can do all sorts of things. In fact, I saw a really good recipe using blueberries and rum and Mm. um, Prosecco. That sounds delicious. Yeah. And I love blueberries. I adore blueberries. So that that makes me very happy. Yeah. And and who can go wrong with rum and Prosecco? Come on now. And blueberries, and blueberries, and blueberries, and then topping it off maybe with like a little bit of that butterfly pea flower. Have you ever tried that out? No, I haven't. That is one I haven't. However, you know, before I was doing edible flower drinks, I was drinking Southern Comfort straight up. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so your book, Eat Your Roses, Pansies, and Lavender, um, not just describing the edible flowers that are commonly available in many of our gardens, but you also offer recipes in there. Right. And there's also a list of flowers that are edible. And mm-hmm. there's a list of flowers that aren't so edible. 
Um, some may have you pushing up daisies, which mm. is not the way you wanted to go out, so to speak. I based my list. Now, it is not all the edible flowers. And I want to be clear. I, I don't do foraging. It's just not something I do. And there's plenty of people that do it. Uh, our friend Ellen, for example. But I, I know people are like, they come to me and say, you know, I always have problems with my stomach or I get headaches. You know, what should I do? I am not a physician. I am not a chemist. And frankly, I don't want to be sued for giving somebody the advice because you don't know a medical history on these people. And if you feel bad, go to the doctor. Don't ask me, go to the doctor. You know, it, a lot of herbal and floral uh, recipes, if you look, if you've ever had surgery, they give you a list of things that you are not allowed to have like 10 days before, or they mm -hmm. ask you, I know a lot of people use St. John's wort for whatever ails you, so to speak. That is actually one of the ones they ask you not to take because it can cause excessive bleeding during surgery. Mm. So I, you know, I stay with it. My recipes are strictly for fun and eating and drinking. They are not to cure whatever ails you. Hmm. And for listeners, the Ellen that Denise was referring to is a fellow garden communicator, Ellen Zakos, and she has a great book on backyard foraging, and she also has the Forager's Pantry, Cooking with Wild Edibles, and the Wild Crafted Cocktail. So that is more on the foraging for making cocktails and mixology. So if you're interested in those type of recipes, check out those books by Ellen Zakos. And you could have her as a guest. Yeah, I would definitely have her as a future guest. And don't mind testing out some of those recipes, too. Oh, oh <laughs> there's never anything wrong with testing out recipes, especially when they involve alcohol. Mm -hmm. So you would refer to some of the more uh, dangerous flowers that we should avoid in the garden. Are there some common ones that people tend to use because they think they're pretty or it has a name that might sound like it's edible, but that you would advise them to steer away from? Well, you know, some of the ones that people like to use. So there's one, Borage, which mm. is a pretty little blue flower. It's a perennial. Mm -hmm. And they came out with a study that showed it if you had a lot of it. In other words, you were kind of gorging on it, mm -hmm. that it actually had some precancerous um, dispositions. So, you know, sure, you could have it. I typically see it used as candied and as a decoration on a flower. Mm -hmm. That's fine, you know. Yeah. But you don't want to sit down and maybe throw several flowers into your salad, for instance. Yeah, I've usually just seen it for a little bit of added color on, on a salad or maybe put into ice cubes or on a cocktail. Right. Yeah. You know, and some of the other ones, uh, Lily of the Valley will have you mm. pushing up daisies, literally. Mm -hmm. And Morning Glories, uh, Cosmos, Daffodils. Can I tell my story about daffodils? Yeah, please do share. So I was uh, listening to an interview with... Um, Oh, I can I can see him. He's a British actor. And anyhow, he was talking about him and his wife. He now lives in the Caribbean. And the cook made some soup and brought it out to him and he tasted it. And he's just like, eh. And here she said, well, I made it from the onions in the refrigerator. Well, they weren't onions. They were his daffodils that oh, he no. was pre-chilling. So he Yikes. could grow them there. So, yeah, daffodils are definitely not edible. Azaleas, boxwood, mm. morning glories, um, rhododendrons, snapdragons. Snapdragons, I know people love them. They mm -hmm. love the smell of them. And when you smell snapdragons, they smell like their colors. So the purple ones smell like grape. The red ones mm -hmm. kind of smell like cherry. Doesn't make them edible. You won't die from it but it's not recommended you eat them. Hmm. Sweet peas are very poisonous as well as wisteria flowers. A lot of people, now the vegetable peas, the flower is edible. Sweet peas are not. And if you don't know the difference, don't eat it. 
Hmm. That's the best thing. Don't eat it. Yeah, it's very surprising because same thing with stearia. They're the plants that are in the pea family. You would think, you know, just looking at them, the similarities that they would not have toxins in them, that they would be all edible. And um, daylilies are edible. Mm-hmm. Lilies are not. They're poisonous, not only to us, but to our pets. Yeah, so the that's a great point to know your latin names so sometimes people will call daylilies just lilies right and we're talking about the poison side of the plant family which is lilium um so those are the true lilies sometimes they're called oriental lilies sometimes orion pet yes um and the, the classic easter lily of course is also in that category and then um if you don't know the difference between a true lily and a day lily. It's actually very easy to tell. True lilies have a stalk that goes up and typically flowers at the end of the stalk. Mm-hmm. Day lilies have what we call strap like leaves, you know, kind of think of a fountain that mm-hmm. way. And then the flowers come up. So you can eat day lily flowers, you can eat day lily buds. The best ones to eat. Now, there are some fragrant day lilies that they've been growing lately. Ice follies is one of them. Hmm. And you want to eat the ones that are lighter colored instead of the dark ones. They just either don't have any taste or they kind of taste a little on the bitter side. But the lighter colored ones are perfectly safe to eat. So you can saute the daylily buds in a little butter, a little garlic, throw them on your steak or just as a side dish and eat them that way. Or you can take the open lily, daylily, let me correct myself, remove mm-hmm. the pistils and stamens. If it, That's where the pollen is, if you don't know, so that the inner guts, so to speak, you actually want to remove it. You can stuff it with crab salad, chicken salad. You can put ice cream in there if you desire. Hmm. Remember, they're day lilies. They're called that for a reason. They're only open for one day and then they're done. And does that include the common, what we call ditch lily? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Those are also members of the hemerocallus, which is the botanical name for Mm -hmm. day lilies. And that's great to know because... For a lot of the mid-Atlantic states, they're classified invasive or potentially invasive. So there's one advice right there to eat your weeds. Well, here's the thing. They're Mm -hmm. along roadsides. Mm -hmm. So, you know, during the winter, you get salt spray. I assume that they use salt down there on the roads. They do Mm -hmm. here. Yep. You get fumes from vehicles and just mud splashed on them and everything. So if it's on like on the side of a road where it doesn't get any traffic, yeah, they'd be fine. If you're getting them on the side of the road, just let them be. In fact, what I tell people, I know a lot of people like to harvest, oh, I'll get it along the road. They see a lot of different wildflowers and edible flowers along the road. Oh, I'll get them from there. So there's a lot of reasons not to, but frankly, one of the best reasons at all, you don't know who's been there with their dog. Mm. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, unless you own that property and, you know, have permission from the property owner and know what's been by. Have they sprayed it? Has the dog done their business there? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You definitely want to know first. I mean, foraging is one thing, but growing your own flowers for eating is obviously the best Best course. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that way you have total control. And that does bring up a question I get a lot, Denise. So pansies and viola edible correct yes Yes. Uh, but then you buy them in the spring or in the fall from the local garden center would you eat those flowers when you brought them home from the garden center well i will tell you being a greenhouse grower that we never had to use any chemicals on them because they really they weren't in there that long now if you are a little leery of that you take them home i would simply remove the flowers and Mm -hmm. let the next crop come up on them and you would be perfectly fine. Yeah, I would think unless you can get a definitive answer from the garden center or grower that you purchase it from, that's a great course of action is to let that first flush of blooms go and then have that second flush of blooms. And then you know what you've added and what you've grown on those plants. Right. 
and you know now trees and shrubs you're they really don't spray them out in the field and by the time you get to it it's been growing for several years unless you're getting one of the little ones from like the arbor day foundation which might be a year too old um so one of the favorites that people love and it looks so good is eastern redbud hmm. you know which is a native plant on top of it and the flowers and if people don't know what the eastern redbud is in the spring it gets these purpley pink tiny flower buds all along the stems it's not like a big flower it's very small and you'll even see it on the trunk of the tree depending on how happy it is and the best way to describe the flavor is like a fresh pea now mm -hmm. keep in mind it is a member of the legume family which peas are also you know they fix nitrogen and that way you know you can throw it in fresh into a salad I have frozen them and then thrown them into hot pasta, which immediately defrosts them and heats them up a little bit. And it's so pretty. Hmm. And, and you can like really impress people like, oh, look what I did. And they're like, oh, wow. She knows <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they keep their color after being frozen. Yes. I put them on a cookie sheet, freeze them, and then put them in a container, you know, mm -hmm. uh, once they're frozen. I just like a little plastic container that mm -hmm. sealed very well that's a great tip denise because i know several of the edible flowers that i've tried um, whether once you blanch them or once you freeze them they kind of turn black which is not the most yeah. um, appetizing looking so what are the best ones for picking when they're in season and then saving for using throughout the year so uh, you can use obviously the eastern red bud mm -hmm. then you can freeze pansies and a lot of people like to put them in ice rings or ice cubes and, mm. and they're very pretty as a centerpiece. You can also freeze the violas, violets. You can freeze the yucca flowers, although they are pretty um, thick. So you've got to make sure they stay frozen. You can freeze uh, dandelions. A lot of people like to, you know, eat that. That's the closest thing I have to foraging on my mm -hmm. list chai flowers are great to freeze and i do the same thing with them that i do with the um oh the red bud mm -hmm. and i can put them on and then you can break them up so if you're harvesting chai flowers what you want to do is when they're about three quarters of the way open that's when you want to harvest them because once they're fully open they start developing seeds and they're hard little black seeds so you don't you don't want them stuck in your teeth. Mm. So I like to do that. And, you know, I threw them, I was making my husband breakfast. I, I threw them in his scrambled eggs, you know, so, and it gives you a light onion flavor because chives are a member of the onion family, but it's a much lighter flavor than is say, if you were cutting a regular onion, you can also uh, freeze bee balm, Minarda. That does very well. Mint mint flowers as well as mint roses now when you're using roses i would suggest that you use light colored ones you can dry them too that's the other thing you can dry them you want to use the lighter colored ones if you don't care and you're going to dry them or freeze them the red ones almost turn black they're, they're still hmm. red they're very dark red you know, so yeah. it's nothing you've done wrong. It's just the way that they dry and freeze. Hmm. So we would choose like the white or very, very pale pinks or yellows for that. The, the pinks, the pinks hold their color incredibly well. Hmm. And another way I know a lot of people enjoy roses in culinary preparations is as a syrup. Um, do you have a standby recipe for making, say, simple syrup from edible flowers? Well, uh, and I do that with several things. Actually, I do it with lavender. Hmm. And uh, so it's simply a cup of sugar, a cup of water, bring it to a boil. What I do is I put the, depending on what it is, whether it's the leaves or the flowers, you know, I put it in the syrup that I've turned off because it's already hot. I don't want to cook the flowers. I just want to extract the fragrant oils from them. Mm. And I let it sit till it's cool and then strain them out. Nice. 
Yeah. And what yeah. is the, 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 the lavender taste like lavender smells and same yes. thing with the lilacs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the one thing about working with lavender, you have to be very careful, not that you're going to kill yourself with it, but the fact of the matter is that if you use too much, it's going to taste like perfume rather mm-hmm. than the light scent of lavender. Now I use it in baking. I've made syrups, but when you're making a syrup with lilacs, and with lavender, what I like to do is actually take maybe five or six blueberries and throw them in and let them kind of plump up and break to give it that blue color. Otherwise, what happens is if you don't do that, it's kind of this grayish green color, which mm. isn't really too appetizing. Yeah, that's a great uh, tip, Denise, because I made violet syrup this spring collecting wild violets and the flavor was really great kind of like a grapey flavor but if you didn't add some type of coloring to it or a little bit of lemon juice to bring out the color then it kind of was was like a muddy uh, gray green color as you described yeah and that's why you know I like to do that and rather than adding food coloring Mm -hmm. I'm just you know I'm out and it really doesn't because you're using so few of the blueberries, it's really not adding blueberry flavor to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that always helps. And actually, I make a lavender blueberry bread that's to die for, and it's like a, a like a tea bread. So it's similar to a pound cake. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like you know one of the ones you got to bake and frost and all that, and they complement each other. Nice. Lavender, lavender and blueberries are two of the best combinations. As much as my book is called Eat Your Roses, lavender and blueberries are so versatile. Huh. And I can imagine that maybe a lemonade made from that lavender syrup with a couple of blueberries thrown in too would be really delicious. Absolutely. You could kind of throw it in the blender. Mm-hmm. A couple ice cubes, kind of make a slushy, maybe a little vodka. we're not far from the bar are we (laughs) no no we're not not at all (laughs) so oh I was just going to ask about um you had mentioned baking and making uh the bread you described and I would love it if you would share with listeners um one of your traditions for wedding cookie displays so we're kind of traveling a little bit far off of the edible flowers but do you use edible flowers in that cookie tradition and can you tell our listeners about that yeah so it's called the uh, cookie table in Pittsburgh and actually it's western Pennsylvania eastern Ohio but like everybody somebody moves because of a job or family and you know they end up in texas california florida wherever so it started out as a tradition that in the village or the small town somebody was getting married but they couldn't really afford you know a fancy wedding cake so both of the families and the local people would make cookies and bring it to the wedding now it's become a huge tradition. I actually belong to a Facebook group called the Wedding Cookie Table Community. <laughs> we actually had the world's largest cookie table a couple of years ago. It was sanctioned by the Guinness Book of World Records. We had 88,485 cookies in one continuous cookie table. <laughs> wait, wait, say that number again, 88 thousand eighty eight thousand four hundred and eighty five cookies i can't even imagine eight thousand cookies much less making eighty eight thousand so how many bakers were involved in making those eighty eight thousand plus there there were hundreds they came Mm. from texas michigan um florida georgia north carolina pennsylvania ohio (laughs) and you know and they had it set up that the tables like were in long serpentine, but the lady from Guinness Book of World Records was there and they were counting them. Hmm. And then the, now some people brought cookies from a bakery and mm-hmm. those cookies were taken to like nursing homes, uh, hospitals like that. The home baked ones were given to first responders. Nice. So they didn't go to waste. You know, and everybody that contributed 10 dozen cookies or more got a shirt that said, you know, that you were part of the 
Guinness Book of World Records. And yes, I have one of those t-shirts. <laughs> now, are there traditional recipes for those wedding cookie displays yeah, that here, are commonly made? Here, well, here's the thing. The one mm-hmm. thing that is typically not made for a cookie table are chocolate mm-hmm. chips, mm-hmm. which everybody loves. But that's usually, I mean, you will see it, but it usually on. So there are a couple traditional cookies. There's one called the peach cookie, and the dough is actually made to look like a, a small peach. And there's a walnut inside to represent the seed pit. And then mint leaves are on the outside. And the dough is tinted to look like a peach. Frankly, it's not my favorite cookie. So I don't really care. You know, somebody (laughs) will hate me for that. Um, It does sound beautiful, though. And then there's the nut horns or the nut rolls. So they call them kolachi. They call them nut horns. They call them Viennese crescents. So there's a number of them. There are the... um, Mexican wedding cakes, also known as Russian tea cakes, also mm-hmm. known as snowballs, but it's pretty much butter flour and nuts and some vanilla rolled into a ball. And then they, when they're hot, they're rolled into powdered sugar. And mm. you know, they're like a one or two bite cookie. And that's it. So those are typically there. Uh, some people have nut rolls there and very, how can I put this? Very ethnic cookies are mm-hmm. always at a cookie table, depending on the nationalities. You know, at my daughter's wedding, we had a 24-foot two-tier cookie table. Um, so think about that, the size of that alone. And when my girlfriend's daughter got married, they had a three-tier 80-foot table, but she had a much bigger wedding. Wow. Um, and a lot of cousins. And do they still have the traditional wedding cake, too? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In fact, most times the cookies are kind of an appetizer. When you get mm-hmm. to the wedding, people go and they either have like Chinese takeout boxes or, you know, dessert plates or uh, treat bags. And you can put them in there and you can lie to whoever you want as you put them in there. You can say, oh, this is for the whole table. But trust me, they're for that person. <laughs> Yeah, I would be collecting my share of cookies and, and maybe I'd even bring a whole cookie tin along. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. people just started doing that in the past few years because before the women, the women would wrap them up in a napkin and put them in their purses. You know, so yeah. this is better and less messy. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but I, I did a uh, lavender shortbread cookie for uh, a wedding. Um, I do a rose cinnamon cookie that I actually did for our friend Maria Zampini's daughter-in-law's wedding Hmm. and you know it's a very light flavor but it's just enough but it's very different I also do lavender biscotti because I make really good biscotti no matter whether there's lavender or not in it and you know so we have fun but we also cook with it so I used to have when I was working we had what was known as the edible flowers food fest and I did it for 14 years. Let me tell you, it's just like cooking for a wedding because I get about 200 people at this thing every year. And one of the things we did is we did baked fish with a combination of lime basil and bee balm and a little white wine and butter sauce and just put it right over it. Mm-hmm. Yum, yum, yum. So you with the edible flower festival. So this was an in-person event that people just came and had little tastings of each thing, or did everybody come and bring edible flower recipes that they had prepared? Or did you do all the cooking, Denise? We did all the cooking. I had wow. volunteers, master gardeners. Like I said, it was like cooking for a wedding. Wow. And so we always had, we had vegetarian, vegan and gluten-free items, not everything, but you know, there was something for everybody. And uh, so one year we did uh, a cold roast beef with a black cherry and rose chutney sauce over it. We did Herbs of Provence uh, chicken. Hmm. So, you know, there, there's a lot of fun things to do. We also did uh, some shrimp with pineapple sage and lemon. Mm, that sounds delicious. Well, I hope that listeners are um, drooling with anticipation for some of these recipes are are many of them shared in your eat your flowers book yes and you know if somebody wants a specific recipe they don't see there because 
what I had put in for here, one recipe that I know your listeners will like, and I'm pretty sure you will too, hmm. is we did a roasted red pepper nasturtium soup. And it pretty much we took roasted red peppers that were already done and, you know, drained them out of a jar, put them in a blender and added, uh, depending either chicken broth or vegetable broth, depending on your preference to make it soup light. And then we added shredded nasturtiums to them, both the flowers and the leaves, because all parts of a nasturtium are edible. Even the seeds are. Hmm. And we put that in and then we put a little either Greek yogurt or creme fraiche on top and floated a leaf and a flower on it. Wow. That sounds beautiful to the eye and to the palate. And it it went like Mm. hotcakes. People always (laughs) ask for seconds. And then we did uh, nasturtium sliders with a a very similar recipe. Hmm. So nasturtium, that does bring up a good point that a lot of us, when you hear the term edible flowers, you're thinking on the sweet side, like there are a lot of sweet flowers, but then there are a lot of ones that lend themselves like the nasturtium to savory recipes. Right. And so, you know, the nasturtiums have a peppery flavor to them. Marigolds, the signet marigolds. So those are the smaller single petaled flowers because a lot of times I'll see in Grocery stores will have edible flowers already packaged, and they're just like the ones you're growing out in your garden. They won't kill you, but the flavor isn't all that great. Mm. Whereas the signet marigolds have kind of a bitter citrus flavor to them. Nice. And so, you know, you can use them. There's actually, I've seen recipes for soup with it. Mm. But then, you know, rosemary is one. And if you grow one called barbecue, the stems are very stiff. It's almost shrub-like. Now, for you, I believe rosemary will winter over for you. For mm-hmm. me, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And there, I I have zone envy only for crepe myrtles and rosemary and camellias. That's the only thing I really <laughs> want to grow that I really can't grow here. I can grow them, but they just aren't here the next year. Mm-hmm. But with uh, the stems, what you can do is actually strip off the bottom ones, save the leaves, you know, for, you can either dry them or chop them up and use them and then take pork or chicken and use it as a skewer. And then you can put it on the grill and it imparts some of the flavor, kind of a smoky rosemary flavor to it. Hmm. That sounds great. And the rosemary flowers themselves, those little tiny blue flowers, do you use those in recipes? Yeah, when I can get them, because if you've ever noticed, they don't bloom a whole lot Mm -hmm. and they are very tiny. So you can dry them because they do retain their flavor, you know, and anytime you're drying flowers and you want to save them, put them in a glass jar, not plastic, because plastic still allows some moisture to seep in, whereas glass does not. Yeah, great tip. And do you use a dehydrator to dry your flowers or do you do it on a cookie sheet? How do you do your drying? Well, it depends on what I am drying. Mm -hmm. So if I was drying um, the dianthus, for instance, I would use my dehydrator. Most of the time I put them on a cookie sheet. Some dry almost instantly, you know, Mm -hmm. like the next day they're already pretty dry. Uh, the other thing I do and people laugh at me is I put them on a cookie sheet and I put them on top of my DVR and the heat from the DVR seems to do the trick right there. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you remember that they're there. <laughs> yes. And, and the, and the trick is during the summer, if you're having a lot of humidity, mm-hmm. you need to turn on the AC because that moisture will affect it drying. Yeah, in the Mid-Atlantic, you know, we're known for our very humid summers. So that's why I ask about the dehydrator, because that, that can really be your best friend sometimes, because right. you don't want them to get moldy or any uh, other they, they just don't dry. They mm-hmm. just don't dry completely. And you do want them to be completely dry. Now, what I like to do is sometimes in medications or like mm, Tylenol or Motrin or whatever, you get that little white capsule. The salicylic acid little packet yeah the little Mm -hmm. packet but a lot of times it's enclosed in a little plastic i don't know what else you would call it Mm -hmm. and i like to put that in the jar and put a little piece of paper towel over it and then put Mm -hmm. my herbs in 
And yeah. that helps absorb the moisture. Yeah, sometimes you can get those little packets at the craft store for drying things. And sometimes they come in like your leather purse or shoes. Well, you have, you have yeah. to be careful with them that mm-hmm. they're not um, shedding any dust on your mm. That's why I'm saying, you know, put the uh, paper towel over it before you do that. Yeah, good point for that. And for, you mentioned when you're drying them, do you dry the whole flower head or do you take the petals off a lot of them? I depends on what I am drying, but say I am doing calendula or dianthus, I take the petals off just because it's quicker. Roses, depending on what I'm going to do with them, I can either dry them whole or I can take the petals off. Anytime you're drying flowers, other than violets and nasturtiums, you have to remove the um, stamens and pistils. You want to get the pollen out of there because that's something you don't want to ingest, actually. Not that it's going to make you sick, but it's not going to taste very good either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a little bitter, I find. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some flowers that you've got to use fresh. Pea flowers, for instance, you have to use fresh. Tulips. People don't think of tulips as being edible, but they actually are. Mm. And but you have to use them fresh. Try try stuffing a red one with some uh, chocolate mousse. Ooh, I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna say a savory recipe like where you had mentioned stuffing daylilies with like a tuna salad or a chicken salad uh-huh. on a, a plate at lunch, and I I have seen tulips done that way as well. Yes, but it wouldn't it be more fun and better with chocolate mousse. Yeah, yeah, I'm never gonna say no to chocolate. <laughs> yeah, almost no one ever does. No. Um, so other edible flowers that I was thinking of are when your vegetables are bolting. So say your radishes, your cabbages, do you collect those edible flowers and use them in the salad or stir fry? I don't grow cabbage because it takes too much space too long mm-hmm. in the garden, but mm-hmm. radishes I grow and actually radish flowers are edible and they do have that kind of spicy bite and there's actually one called i want to say they call it the rat's tail radish mm-hmm. that's actually grown for the flower rather than yep. the radish itself yeah so you know a lot of us gardeners bemoan you know when it gets hot really fast at the end of spring and and our vegetables start to bolt really quickly which is go to flower and seed but you know grab some of those some of those are edible flowers and they can add you know color and flavor to your recipes and speaking of seeds, mm-hmm. almost everybody eats sunflower seeds, mm. mm-hmm. but you can eat the sunflower too. So you can take the blossoms off, separate them. Obviously, you're not going to eat the flower head for obvious reasons and toss them in a salad. We've done a um, vegetable salad with broccoli and nuts, sunflower seeds sunflower petals an Asian dressing you can kind of add whatever you want into it and people loved it but that's it's very quick very impressive to your friends Hmm. yeah it sounds lovely to look at as well so in your book uh, you talk a little bit about some of the gathering or preparation which you've discussed here, are there any other tips that you would give to listeners when they're just starting out using edible flowers? Should they just do one or two to start and then see if they might have an allergic reaction or something like that? Yes. And um, one of the cautions is if it's a ray type flower. So think of sunflower, chrysanthemum, something like that, that has those kind of spoke type flowers, if you will. If you have severe asthma, you may want to introduce it a little bit of time and see if you have a reaction. I have found that most people don't have reactions, but it's always better to be safe than sorry. I also don't recommend giving edible flowers to children younger than four, just because kids have a ton of allergies that you don't know about. My grandson is severely allergic to peanuts, Hmm. but he can eat other nuts. But I used to have kids that would come to the edible flowers and they were the most adventurous eaters of all. They would try everything on the menu. Whereas some of the adults were like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to eat that. The the kids would try everything and there was never any problems. And of course they loved it. We did rose petal ice cream. What's not to love. Mm -hmm. And they always had a lot of fun with that. 
but it's just cautionary. And obviously you are not going to have every meal have edible flowers in it. This was like a once a year event. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had people ask me if I wanted to cater a few things. I'm just like, uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there I do see uh, more businesses and cut flower farms popping up that are selling specifically um, like little packs of edible flowers to either sprinkle on a wedding cake or on a salad for a special like tea party or occasion. Mm-hmm. So that's nice to see that that is starting to trend and be really common now. Yeah. But, you know, always kind of check your sources for it. And people ask me about fertilizing if you're going to grow your own, so to speak. You are perfectly fine with using a synthetic fertilizer. If you want to use fish emulsion, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, spraying things for insects would be different. Now, nasturtiums do have a tendency to get aphids. Mm. You could always have a little fresh meat with your salad. Um, but what's more common is just take a sharp spray of water on a hose and that pretty much knocks them off and takes care of that problem. Most of these others don't have any problems with insects. But if for some reason, like your roses do have issues, mm-hmm. you know, if you grow roses, you have insects. And so you can use something organic on them. That's one thing I would suggest. There is an organic fungicide called Serenade. And Always read the label because sometimes it won't take care of the problems that you have. So you want to read it before you buy it. And there's hot pepper wax, which is good for insects as well. That's also considered organic. So you can do the, you know, do them if you have some issues. But most of these, other than the roses, really don't have any issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you, like you said, you get a little protein along with your meal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's inevitable <laughs> when you're gathering from the garden. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's even a vegetable. You get it inside and go, oops. <laughs> you brought a little friend in for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> you meant to be vegan, but not quite. <laughs> so. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that does bring up, I was looking up the famous quote from Paracelsus about all things are poison for there is nothing without poisonous qualities. It is only the dose that makes a thing poison. So even water can be poisonous if you have too much of it. So Right. That, yeah, so people that, have died from that, literally, ingesting mm-hmm. too much water. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point to try a tiny bit to see your reaction first. Mm-hmm. You know, like take a little bite of that calendula blossom, just the end petal, you know, give it a day or two, make sure you don't have a reaction, and then yeah. try cooking with it. You know, and, you know, you can, you may not like the flavor, per se, when you first bite into it but you might like it when it's cooked. Hmm. Yeah. And I was going to say squash blossoms are a common edible flower that many of us eat. And especially in Asian cuisines as well. And Italian. Hmm. Definitely. And one thing about squash blossoms, um, we used to have, this was the one time we used somebody outside. He used to make squash blossoms stuffed with um, pureed, Oh, barley mm-hmm. and maple syrup and ground walnuts and he would stuff the blossoms with it and then dip them in a batter and deep fry them people went crazy they mm-hmm. want they wanted i want 10 of them no you know it's one to a customer until we get through the line <laughs> well yeah deep fried definitely puts the icing on the cake there that sounds great yeah you know, but people enjoyed it. And, you know, there's some other things. Scented geraniums. Mm-hmm. So you can use the flowers, but you can also use the leaves to scent something. So my girlfriend actually likes to make um, rose uh, geranium cakes. And she take washes the leaves um, and lets them dry and then lays them on the bottom of the cake pan and pours her batter on top of them and bakes the cake. And then when she takes it off, she actually just pulls the leaves off and it just has a light flavor to them. Hmm. So that sounds like it could work well with like a pound cake type recipe. Exactly. Mm. It would work with that. And, you know, we talked about making simple syrups, but one of the other things we used to do is we would take lemon verbena. I love lemon verbena. I do not like lemon balm. I don't care if it's, 
you know, the herb of the year or whatever. I don't like it. There's an aftertaste to it. But lemon verbena tastes like lemon, a mm. very bright lemon flavor. And we would take a handful of leaves and put it in cream, whipping cream, let it sit overnight and then strain it out the next day and whip it up. And we would just have flavored whipped cream for a dessert. Lovely. So how about elderberry flower? So that's one that's really getting popular for medicinal use, uh, the Sambucus plant. Mm -hmm. But I almost feel like you're robbing the berries by eating some of those flowers. So how do you make that decision of how much to harvest for flowers for eating versus letting it go to be a plant? Say, I know. Grow uh, grow extra. Grow extra because it's just like the daylilies. Mm-hmm. If you take all the buds off, you're not going to have flowers. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the squash. I, I had a friend who was really greedy for squash blossoms, and then they never had squash at the end of the season. The guy who who was making the squash blossom for us actually had several acres of squashes that he grew strictly for the blossoms. Hmm. Yeah, so it's a good idea to keep that in mind when you're planting, to plant extra and set aside some that are just going to be used for the flowers for culinary purposes and then the rest you'll let actually form the vegetable or the plant yeah and there's some that it won't matter like you know the chives for instance Mm -hmm. you actually want to do harvest those flowers before they go to seed unless you want a field of chives because once you plant chives you always have chives and so using the flowers you're not going to hurt anything you're not going to hurt any reproductive issues Mm -hmm. with the plant you know apple and crab blap crab apple blossoms if you remove the blossoms too soon uh, you're not going to have any fruit Mm -hmm. yep i was going to say with a lot of the berries and peach blossoms uh also as well you're obviously robbing the the fruit harvest later on but you know you might have extra yes and so listeners who want to get your recipe your book maybe get in contact with you how can they do so okay they can get the book on amazon because mm-hmm. it's out of print, so now it's only available on Amazon. And if they want to contact me, it is Edible Flowers. Gee, how creative is that? Edible <laughs> Flowers, the number one at AOL.com, and just put in the subject line Edible Flowers, although I do check my spam. Okay, great, Denise. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, you made us super hungry <laughs> and ready to go out in the garden. Uh, any final thoughts that you'd like to share with listeners on growing edible flowers, maybe for somebody who's never attempted or, or tried them before? Try the simple ones first. So you can use the herb flowers because that's easy. Lavender is easy, you know, because you can use the flowers and the leaves for that. Uh, mint is edible, but only if you don't care if you always have mint. Mm-hmm. Nasturtiums, they'll give you a variety. And let's go with maybe using um, the daylilies. You know, just try a few of them. Well, thank you so much, Denise. Oh, thank you. I had a good time. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Amsonia plant profile. Amsonia hubrecti grows well outside of its limited native range, the mountains of western Arkansas, and is proven to be hardy in USDA zones 4 through 9. This herbaceous perennial takes about three growing seasons to reach maturity and is long-lived. A mature plant will have about 50 stems and grows three feet high and wide. This species is also commonly called threadleaf blue star or Arkansas blue star, or simply Amsonia. It dies down in the winter and starts to re-sprout in April. It is deer resistant and well noted for providing three seasons of interest. In spring, there are clusters of pale blue flowers. 
Then in summer, it has copious amounts of feathery apple green foliage. Finally, it has brilliant clear yellow foliage for at least a month in autumn. It is most often planted because of this colorful display it provides from October into November. You can prune the plant to about 12 inches high immediately after the bloom cycle has ended to encourage a fuller growth habit for the summer. The sap when cut is sticky, so wear gloves when pruning it. It produces its best color when grown in full sun. However, it will tolerate morning sun and afternoon shade. Amsonia prefers moist, well-drained soil, but it can adapt to somewhat drier conditions once it has become established. The best method of propagating Amsonia hubrecti is by dividing the crown in springtime. Softwood cuttings are also possible. Starting the species by seed has mixed results because the seeds sprout erratically. Amsonia hubrecti is known for its effectiveness in mass plantings, informal borders, and naturalistic landscapes. I love seeing it planted along roadsides throughout the mid-Atlantic states. One famous landscape setting is by the Capitol Columns at the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. It is a show-stopping display in mid-autumn with the purple aster blooms setting off the golden Amsonia foliage to great effect. Amsonia hubrecti. You can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, over at the community garden plot, the faba beans are starting to look like little cigars and I'm hoping to be able to harvest them in a week or so. Back in my home garden, it's hydrangea season from the mop heads to the smooth hydrangea to the oak leaf hydrangea. They are coming into bloom and I've been cutting a few to enjoy inside but loving the way they are filling out that kind of gap period in the garden between mid-spring to early summer. So hydrangea, thank you for being that bridge plant for me in my garden. And a couple local garden events to note. This weekend, first weekend of June, 4th through 6th, there is a new program going on virtually called MoCo Grows. So if you're a resident of Montgomery County, Maryland, and interested in starting a victory garden or vegetable garden, and you're a beginner gardener, this is a great program for you to get involved in. It's totally free and open to anybody to sign up for, and they'll have some ongoing program throughout the summer. So check out MoCo Grows. Also happening this coming week is the Philadelphia Flower Show, which we've mentioned a few times before on the Garden DC podcast. And I'm hearing and seeing wonderful things from those designers who have installed their gardens outdoors, and it is going to be phenomenal. Also coming up is the Pollinator Week, June 21st to 27th. And if you go to pollinator.org, you can check out local garden events that are focused around pollinators. You can host your own event. And close to home for me in downtown Tacoma Park, there will be a Pollinator Day on June 20th uh, that is open and free to all to attend. And they'll be doing some pollinator seed giveaways, some children's activities, so check that out. And I can't forget that this is the time of year for plant sales, and I'm talking about literal sales, as in your local independent garden center is starting to mark down plants and to move out inventory. So if you had your eye on something and maybe it was a little out of your budget or you weren't sure about purchasing it, this is the time to get back over to your local independent garden center and see what's on sale, what is coming in and what is going out. And I am seeing 
many of the Mid-Atlantic Garden Centers having great prices, especially on edible plants. So it's not too late to plant your tomatoes and peppers. This is actually a perfect time to do so. So grab up those plants. You can still do eggplant. You can do all the squashes and melons and cucumbers by direct sowing the seeds or with started seedlings. So a perfect time to visit your local garden center and grab up some of those bargain plants. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.